0: Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we do pray that this word of which we have been singing would dig deep down into our hearts, And do the work that you have designed your word to do by the power of your spirit to change us, to transform us into your likeness, to bear fruit, to give you honor, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. They say one thing and they do another. This is uh, the charge that is commonly laid against Christians. They say one thing, they do another. Most people uh, today would still recognize that uh, the Sermon on the Mount has ethical principles in it, which still today few would dare openly to oppose. And Jesus himself is almost certainly more widely respected than any other historical figure who has ever existed. But Christians... They say one thing, they do another. They say love, but they speak hate. They say peace, but they make war. They say joy, but they look miserable. Some day sweet Hosanna's they sing, then crucify. Is all their breath. One person who pointed out this charge of hypocrisy famously was the Indian political and religious leader Mahatma Gandhi. He was reported to have told a missionary that if the Christians there would only behave like Christ, they would win India tomorrow. They say one thing, they do another. How do we respond to this common charge of hypocrisy today? What is our reply to it? See, Paul and the section of this book of Romans that we're looking at together, is. Clarifying uh, the true gospel against false gospels with great precision, but does not that very doctrinal precision uh, run the risk of so elevating our understanding of the truth to an almost unattainably high level and so therefore almost inevitably run the risk of embracing hypocrisy? that We would say one thing but do another. Well, our passage this morning has the antidotes to hypocrisy. See, in Romans uh, chapter 2, verses 17 to 24, you'll find it on page 940 in the Pew Bibles. Let me encourage you to reach forward and get one. Romans 2, verses 17 to 24, you see Paul writes these words. Now, as we seek to understand this passage, it's particularly helpful to have insight into the way it is structured, and this passage is structured in what is known as an inclusio or a bracketing structure. It's indicated by the key word both, which occurs at the beginning, verse 17, and then again at the end, verse 23. Now, when you see that top and tail structure in a Bible text, it often indicates the emphasis And uh, here it is, the emphasis of boasting. Now, we need to remind ourselves that, biblically speaking, boasting in God is not itself necessarily wrong. Uh, uh, For instance, Jeremiah 9 verse 24 says this, "'Let him who boasts, boast that he understands and knows God.'" It's better by far to boast in God than to boast in money or wisdom or power. Our confidence is to be in the Lord, not ourselves ourselves. But the trouble with the boasting here was that it was hypocritical. Look at verse 23. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Now, additionally to this inclusio structure that so shows this central idea, boasting but breaking, the passage has another aspect to its structure, and that is an if then structure. So verses 17 to 20, the first half of the passage, are introduced by if. They are the conditional clause. And then the second half of the structure switches. Verses 21 to 24 are introduced by then, if, then. The second half is the consequent clause, conditional consequent clause. In the second half, the consequence. clause. Clause has a series of questions that he's asking, and they're almost a sort of law court prosecuting counsel kind of kind of questions, almost forensic in nature. They're, they're brilliantly designed to expose this common problem that Paul is addressing here. Now, it's true, and you probably noticed that Paul was talking specifically about a certain kind of religious Jew. But Jesus makes it clear that the same tendency is one that all his followers are equally to be careful to avoid. He he says, uh, you may remember, uh, beware the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, Luke 12 uh, verse 1. So Paul here then wants us to realize that those who boast in God, well, they still break the law. And uh, therefore, the main proposition this morning is as follows. Boasting in the law does not prevent breaking the law, and therefore we all need the gospel. So first, boasting, second, breaking which together leads to the antidotes to hypocrisy, first boasting. this is the uh, verses seventeen to twenty, the series of conditional statements, the first part of the passage, and as you look down, you can see they 're describing the boasting of a religious Jew at one level, having legitimate confidence in their special status, and yet at another level there 's a hypocrisy that is particularly a temptation to all who are especially familiar with God and the Bible. This conditional clause, or the protarsis, as it's technically uh, known, has three elements that describe this legitimate confidence of the religious person, but then a fourth hint that subtly suggests the hypocrisy that was embedded throughout this confidence. It's fascinating how Paul does it. Follow along with me. See, one, they have special status. So he writes, you call yourself a Jew. Well, the name of Jew, of course, expresses an enormously privileged status of being part of God's special people with a special role to play in the salvation of the world. Similarly, the name Christian that many of us carry Uh, has a a special privilege. We bear the name of Christ, Christian. Well, Paul then writes that you rely on the law. You see, to have the holy oracles of God, to be guardians of the Scriptures, uh, is also an enormously privileged status that the Jews uh, had. Similarly, Christians, especially evangelical Christians, well, they love the Scriptures just as much, don't they? If not more, they prize the Bible. We treasure it, don't we? Paul carries on, you boast in God. What a privilege (laughs) to be able to praise God, gather, honor God, declare God's glory. It's something God's people rightly claim as their special status to be able to do so. You see, the special status, the name, the law, the, the boasting gave them a legitimate confidence. That's one. Two, uh, they have not only special status, they also have revealed knowledge. So Paul writes, You know his will. See, those who have the Bible, read it, learn it, study it, they're able to say that they know the will of God, they know what God says. They know what God wills, therefore. But not only do they know His will, they, He tells us, approve what is excellent. Well, this means that those who know the Bible know uh, God's will, and therefore, because of that, they are able to approve what is excellent. That is, they're able to discern what is best or excellent in other areas of knowledge as well. You see, the knowledge of God's will in the Bible allows them to discern what is best about life in general, about work, about family. It gives you a framework to discern and approve what is genuinely excellent. They have then this revealed knowledge because they know his will. They approve what is excellent. And then Paul writes, they are instructed from the law. Well, this means uh, that they have the best teachers, I think. They have the excellent experts in the Bible who have uh, perhaps all the best degrees from Jerusalem. And they teach in a gripping way about the Bible. And so they have legitimate confidence because they have revealed knowledge as well as special status. And then three, they themselves also actively teach. So not only do they have status and knowledge, they are telling other people about what they know too. And so he says here, they are a guide to the blind. That is, they are directing in the right way those who are unable to learn or are blind to the truth. They they can't get it, but they'll, they'll just direct them in the right way. He says they are light to those who are in darkness. Uh, That is, they provide the basics to those who know next to nothing about God. They're in darkness, they don't know anything, but they'll provide them light. He says they are an instructor of the foolish. That is, they are able to correct those who badly misunderstand. Uh, You've completely missed the point in this text. Let me correct you. They are a teacher of children. That is, they catechize and train those uh, either literally young or those who are young to the things of the faith. Uh, They are themselves then able to teach. Why? Because they have in the law, Paul says, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. that is, they have incorporated and put together the, the basic system of the Bible in a, in a coherent body, the embodiment of the truth. A coherent body of knowledge so that, of course, not only do they understand it, now they have this system, this, this embodiment, this coherent body of, of knowledge. And now it's readily transferable, teachable to others as well. Well, no wonder they have such confidence. They have special status, revealed knowledge. They themselves actively teach. What else is there? Surely this picture is near perfection. It looks rather like, doesn't it, the graduate of an exemplary discipleship class. (laughs) What could such people be lacking when they have these three solid reasons for legitimate confidence? Well, in this first part of the passage, verses 17 to 20, Paul does not specify the problem, but there's a fourth element in these verses, a hint at what that problem is. There's a subtle selection of a couple of specific words that uh, hints at what the problem is. So he says they rely on the law. That's well, a very carefully chosen word by Paul because the word rely is used in Micah 3 verse 11 like this, and I'll, I'll quote it to you. Israel's heads, that's the leaders of God's people, give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean. Now, That's the same word in the Greek version of the Old Testament as here translated rely. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. You see, that word rely or lean is suggesting that they were... Relying on God like a person finding a really comfortable couch to lean on and take a nap. That sort of spread-eagled in front of the Bible like a couch potato in front of a TV. Looking but not being changed by what they see or read. There's one other subtle word choice here that Paul uses and it's the word sure They are sure that they're right. But are they right? Are they, in fact, missing a component that is essential to spiritual health? Well, Paul will show what that is when he moves on from that first section, about uh, 17 to 20, from boasting to second, breaking this is the second section, verses 21 to 24. It's the main or the consequent clause of the conditional clause. Uh, it's technically known as the apodarsis of the protarsis. And what's going on here is a series of questions, and Paul is almost forensically in a law court kind of place revealing evidences of hypocrisy. And it, specifically, there are three tendencies or typical evidences of hypocrisy that he, he, he brings to the surface with this series of cross-examining questions. What about this? What about the other? What about this? And each of the questions show this, that their problem was that their religion was merely theoretical and only intellectual. It, it, was, to the, it, it was not to them a word that was changing their lives and propelling them towards joy. It was, a, it was a couch to rest upon. There was no application. Plenty of scholarship and understanding and theory. Look with me at these evidences. Again, they're very profound and, and quite fascinating and important to notice. Evidence number one. Not preaching to yourself what you preach to others. And so Paul asks, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Well, this exposes, doesn't it, the particular temptation that tends to run concurrently with a certain activity, responsibility, and calling, teaching. See, it is preachers who must most of all be wary of hypocrisy. The great tendency is to preach to others what you have not preached to yourself. So busy preparing sermons, you hardly have a moment to listen to them. If God has called a man to a pulpit, the devil will try to keep him out. If he cannot keep him out, he will try to make him a hypocrite. This is why James, in his letter in the New Testament, tells us that not many should presume to be teachers. Being a preacher is not an easy thing. It's not just about, you know, studying and preparing sermons and getting all the words exactly in the right place. It's not just about giving a good talk. It's about being a living testimony to what you teach. So the importance of preaching to yourself, what you preach to others, is is a, a high one for pulpits, as well as for Sunday school teachers, small group Bible study leaders, university teachers of theology, and outreach to our neighbors, as well as the church's overall mission to the whole globe. God has given us a message. And if the devil cannot stop us from speaking it, he will try to stop us from living it. If we do not speak it, they will not hear it. And if we do not live it, they are far less likely to believe it, even if they do hear it. Because the way we live will deny what we say. What's the solution? Well, well, we'll discover that as we go through this passage. Part of the solution is right here in this question. That is to preach to ourselves. To take the message that we are preparing, the theology that we are developing, the missionary strategy that we're formulating, the Sunday school lesson that we're teaching, the evangelistic message that we're sharing with our friends at work, and preach the message to ourselves, to preach to ourselves first what we'll preach to others. Someone told me this week that it was said of John Chrysostom, the great preacher of the early church, that his words were like thunder because his life was like lightning. He avoided this aspect, number one, of hypocrisy, which is not preaching to yourself what you preach to others. Well, evidence number two, not practicing yourself what you preach to others. Again, this is so significant and fascinating how Paul was doing this. And, of course, it's worse even than the first evidence, and it is, in the end, far more damaging, even though perhaps it comes from the first evidence. Paul puts it like this, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now the general idea, of course, of what Paul is saying here is pretty clear. He's asking them whether they practice what they preach. What is less clear is why Paul chose these particular examples of that general tendency to not practice what you preach. And there is a good deal of discussion in particular about the last one in the literature about this uh, this part of the passage the first that paul addresses is about stealing well how many of paul's intended audience really stole perhaps more than we or they might have thought before they were asked the question <laughs> because of course stealing is more than armed robbery it can be shoplifting Or stealing someone's reputation or passing off their work as your own isn't it remarkably ironic that someone who preaches against stealing could steal that sermon on stealing or a man who teaches against stealing could steal possessions from hotel rooms where they stay at the conferences where they're teaching Or a woman who trains her children not to steal toys from each other can maneuver her own inheritance so that her brother is left with little of value and she receives the lion's share from their parents. The second of Paul's three particular examples of the general characteristic of not uh, not practicing what you preach is adultery. What again, we may ask ourselves how many of Paul's intended audience were really committing adultery. But then, of course, uh, perhaps we remember that Jesus defined adultery as not simply physical, but also the intentionality of the heart. And with that definition, we need wonder no more as to the effectiveness of Paul's application relating to adultery. The third particular example has caused most discussion. What does Paul mean by those who rob temples? Several possibilities have been given by scholars, and to be frank, no one seems quite sure. Perhaps Paul means a tendency developing among Jews at the time. they have been scattered by the exile to live in pagan countries, so they were near pagan temples. A tendency to abhor the idols of those temples, but not to be above robbing those idol statues and selling their precious metal from them for financial gain. They're only statues after all. <laughs> and that may be why actually in Acts chapter 19, where Paul and his companions are accused of blaspheming a pagan god, that it may be not only because their evangelist effectiveness had prevented the trade in statues from flourishing, but because there actually were Jews who truly were robbing temples. So when we look at these three particular examples of evidence number two, not to practice what you preach, we can discover, can't we, that they're actually directed at three common areas where people tend to fail to apply the Bible. Money or materialism, adultery or lust, robbing temples, or zeal for God's truth without... Costly love for pagan neighbors. Evidence number three reveals the typical effects of hypocrisy. And again, it's fascinating how Paul does this. You see, he writes, uh, Can you see? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Well, we may ask ourselves, how is that actually the case? How was that actually happening? How was it that they're breaking the law that they boast in? dishonor God, because those who do not yet follow God will assess God by those who do follow God and how they actually live. This is natural enough and inevitable. And it's why Paul quotes from the Old Testament in verse 24. He says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 5. He's referring to that, and it says there this, Now therefore what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. such despising or blaspheming of God's name was because God's people had been sent into exile. And so this blasphemy it was not here merely a casual curse word, but a despising of God based upon the evidence of the way God's people were living. This is how the nations were reasoning to themselves. God's people gone into exile. And so naturally enough, they asked themselves, well, what kind of God is this that his people go into exile? How great can he be? They didn't understand. They didn't have the theology. They didn't have the background to understand that God was disciplining those that he loves in order to bring them back to himself, as he did. No, They just assumed that God wasn't that great after all. Ezekiel 36 explains Paul's thinking here further, where it says there in verses 20 to 23, and uh, I think Paul has this in his mind too, as you'll see when I read it. Verses 20 to 23 But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of the land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord had gone into exile, and the nations thought, that's not much of a god then. You see, hypocrisy typically has this damaging effect on God's honor. It tends to to cause the person who observes it to wonder whether God is so great after all. The person sees people say one thing and do another. He observes people who say that they rejoice in the Lord, look miserable, You and I know that perhaps they're being disciplined by God as a father disciplines the child he loves, withdrawing his sense of presence from them to bring them back to himself. But the person doesn't know that, who observes it, and he naturally enough assesses the truth of what Christians believe by the way Christians actually live. They say to themselves, is this unhappiness that I see really what it's like to have life to the full? they claim. They say to themselves, is this passivity, defeatism, really what it's like to worship the great God of the universe? Not much of a God if so. For they say one thing and they do another. They boast in the law and they break the law. The antidote Jesus. God alone must act to vindicate the holiness of his great name that the nations will know that he is the Lord, as Ezekiel predicted. And he has. And so Paul concludes this section. I hope you've got your Bibles open, as always at College Church. Look at Romans chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 27. He concludes this section by picking up on this theme of boasting. He has a goal. He's trying to do something. 3 verse 27 goes like this. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No. But by the law of faith. You see, God in Christ died on the cross... To vindicate God's holiness. Taking in himself all the righteous wrath of God against all our unrighteousness. And declaring to the world that justice matters. That there is a price to be paid for breaking the law. And that price was paid. Even those who break the law in which they boast may be saved by faith in Jesus' death on the cross. The antidote to hypocrisy is faith in Jesus. You see, hypocrisy feeds off pretense, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, I've got all these standards, and of course I live up to them. Really? Faith is throwing yourself as you are into relationship with another. Faith in Jesus requires acknowledging, frankly, our own breaking of the law, putting our trust solely in Him. So this gospel of Jesus Christ, when received by this faith, changes a man and a woman, a boy and a girl. There's a new spirit, a new life working from the inside out. So that Christ within us gradually makes us more authentically like him in actual practical living. It's not a system, it's a person, a person who is alive, as we will remember this week, real and can change your life by His Spirit this morning. See, what would be the result if this transformation increasingly took place? If if we who follow Christ increasingly were being changed into His likeness by the person of Jesus, by His Spirit, through His Word, applied deep into our hearts from the inside out. Would those outside our churches who visit them, perhaps as you are this morning, observe our Christ-likeness, our authenticity, Growing among us our oh, Christ like authentic following of God, would they would they notice the light and be drawn to it and be moved from blasphemers to worship us of the true greatness of the great God that we proclaim? Not because of any new evangelistic technique that we can come up and scheme in some committee or other, but but because we authentically follow the Christ. We openly profess. I suppose there's only one way of finding out the answer to, to those questions. Trust in Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that we who boast in the Bible would apply it to our lives be changed by you and live authentically as followers of you. I pray with great specificity this morning that those who know you by name, by heritage, would this morning by your Spirit be convicted almost painfully. And discover the life that is eternal. I also pray, uh, Lord, that uh, those of us who know you and yet sometimes hide our sins, even from ourselves, that you by your Spirit would graciously convict us, not so that we could be discouraged far from it, but so that we could be encouraged and strengthened and lifted up out of our gloom into the joy of fellowship with you in renewed passion and power. And I pray that the result would be honor to you, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.